Hello and welcome back to the TTL, Tatani Talks Life, this year where we talk a topic per session with some practical lessons. Tonight's topic on the TTL is the meaning of the sukkah elements. All shows, all podcasts, besides for Tani Talk Stuff, which is on sheer enjoyment, is on all podcast forums. We have just finished Tani Talks Parsha, the first official season. We've done it before, but the first official season just wrapped up. Look out for it. It's on the podcast forums. God willing, we Nether will continue with Barashas going forward, trying to get that five, ten or so minutes talk about the Parsha. And the other shows are also on the podcast forums, especially, especially all the other ones besides for the TTD. The shear should be for the Zuchus, for the Rafu and Yeshua of anyone who needs or anyone who wants. Big shout out to Jake W. and Ellie N. for all their amazing, wonderful hard work and sheer enjoyment. Sources are from Safari and H.com unless noted otherwise. And we have some good articles, some good stories, and some good sources. So strap in, buckle in, and join us for the journey, please, as we talk a little bit about Sukkus. Did you ever stop and think what is the point, the real point of Sukkus? What are we supposed to learn? And to really take from Sukkot, what is the point of the hut? Which is basically what people call it. Oh, is that the holiday of the hut? Going around school these days and they ask me what the holiday is. Is that the one where you guys build a hut? You build like a weird tabernacle thingy outside? What's the point of the Esor? What's the real point of the Lulav, the Hadassim, and the Arava? Why do we take them all together? Why four and why do we go basically outside for a week? Is there something deeper going on? The answer to this question is for sure, of course, there is. We just have to dig and find out what it really is. H.com points out with author Slovy John Rice Wolf, the, the daughter of the very famous Rebbits and Young Rice, Allah Shalom. We dwell in our sukkah for seven days. We leave our homes and all that is within the dining room table, the mirrors, and the lighting, the comfort of our couch, and we sit in a temporary hut, a sukkah. But why? Why a sukkah? We're going to look at the source later on, God willing. But when the Jewish people were taken out of Egypt, God provided them with sukkah booths of shelter. His clouds of glory would be their protection in the harsh desert wilderness. Why wouldn't God give his nation a more permanent dwelling? This generation that left Egypt was weak in faith, weak in Amunah, weak in Bitachon. God wanted his people to know forever that strength and security come not from a beautiful home or a fancy car, not from ADT or any or Sloman Shield or from the locks, the fancy locks. It's the Emunah, it's the Bitachon, it's really Hashem. Yes, you have to do your Shtalas and have the security, have the locks, but really understand where the real protection comes from. That's why we have the mezuzah throughout the whole house, understanding it's Hashem above that really protects us. It is not about our possessions, our security systems, our bank accounts, or jobs. It's all about faith. Come, God beckons. Leave all your fears behind. I will shelter you beneath my wings. You will find your faith. You will find and discover serenity. Our connection will endure forever. Greater than anything is the knowledge that you do not live life alone. Find your fortress of faith. Reflecting on our sukkah helps open our eyes to the definition of true trust in God. Sukkah asks us to think, what matters in life? What sustains me? Whatever is important is right here with me. Everything else is temporary. The shelter of the divine is the only shelter that remains forever. Our sukkah reminds us that there was a time our people too felt helpless. Just as God sustained us and nourished both our bodies and souls, so too will we find our sustenance. God will never abandon his people. As difficult as life seems, remember this teaching well. We have gone through an incredible journey, exiled throughout the four corners of the world, given up for dead, and yet here we are. The Romans came, made great pomp and circumstances, and withered and died away. The Greeks came on the earth, made a loud stink, and they withered and died away. The Egyptians, the Babylonians, Paras, Amadai, Persia, and Media, all of these people came and withered away, but only the Jew remains. Only the Jew stands tall. That's a famous quote, I believe, from Mark Twain in reference to the Jewish people. And he also has a very, very famous quote about the, the land of Israel itself, that it only really bloomed with the Jews, but before and it was a real, really a barren wasteland. Sitting in the sukkah booths, as our forefathers did in the desert, reminds us here we are. The legacy remains alive. We are a miracle, like Shweki sings about Lahavdil. Renew your, renew your strength and courage. Inspire yourself. Ignite the spark that lies within your soul. The four species together, the rule of the Arava, the Hadassim, the Esrog, together comprise one mitzvah. If one of the species is missing, the mitzvah is not fulfilled. 
Each species represents another type of Jew. We're going to see that source also, God willing. God says that we are to hold all four together as one because each one is necessary. Each one is important. Whoever fulfills this mitzvah brings peace and harmony to himself and to the entire world. So really we have to understand that we are a real nace. We are a real miracle. The fact that we're here, that we're sitting in this hut, really proves us the miraculous nature of our people, starting with all the way back at Avraham Avinu to Yitzchak to Yaakov, every step of the way was a real miracle, and everyone came and everyone left. They made a great noise and they left. Really, we're the ones that remain. Everyone around us, they could come and go, come and go, where the Jewish people are forever, Merit Hashem, forever and ever. And the hut, the hut, the temporary existence reminds us the only permanence is really Hashem and the Torah and keeping the chesed, keeping the mitzvahs, keeping the true Torah lifestyle alive. H.com points out from Rabbi Shraga Simmons, often the key to discovering this focus is found in the prayers. The Siddur, the prayer book, and really the Machzor, refers to Sukkot as Man Simchatena, the time of our joy. We talked a little bit in the Parsha talk, but really this is the time when in Simchat Torah especially we finish the Torah again. We finish the Torah anew and we start it anew, the time of our joy. Sukkot is designed as a one-week workshop on joy. For seven days, we move out of our wall-to-wall carpeted, air-conditioned house into a little hut called a sukkah. But how is this supposed to make us happy? The lesson is that the physical objects with which we surround ourselves are not what make us happy. A person can live in a gorgeous home and be absolutely miserable. I talk about this a lot. A person can have a 17-room mansion and be utterly miserable. A person can have a tiny two-bedroom house and be extremely joyous. It's not about the possessions. It's about how we look at our possessions, how we use our possessions, how we use our lifestyle. Ben Zoma says in Perkyovus, Ezehu Ashir Hasameach Bechalka, who is really happy, who is content and happy with his life. A person can have a tiny house and be extremely happy living in a tiny two bedroom apartment with a hundred different people. And a person could have a 17-bedroom house, but be extremely, extremely upset. It all depends on how you look at the possessions. It all depends on how you go about the possessions, how you go about being involved in the actual things that you have. The success and the happiness is not in the, in the objects. It's how we use the objects to really make us happy. The lesson is that the physical objects we're surrounded with are not what makes us happy. A person can live in that home, be absolutely miserable. He can live in a shabby hut, but be ecstatically happy. The key to joy is success in our relationships. This includes our relationship with other people, with ourselves, and with Hashem. The Medrash says that the four species of the Lulav, and we'll look at this scuttling a little later, represent four different types of Jews. The Asterisk has a good taste and a good fragrance. It represents a person with both wisdom, Torah learning, and good deeds. Gemilat chasadim, someone doing the mitzvahs, doing good deeds. So the esrog, taste and fragrance, Torah and good deeds. Torah and derecheres, if you will, as well. The hadas, the myrtle, has a good fragrance, but is not edible. So it smells good, but you can't eat it. It represents a person who has good deeds, Good smell, good deeds, good gemilah chasana, but he lacks wisdom, he lacks Torah learning, he lacks having the foundations and the foundations of actually having the Torah within him. The lulav, the date palm, is edible, you can eat it, but it has no smell. This represents the person with wisdom, with Torah learning, but without good deeds. So someone who learns but does not do the actions, it's not good. Perkyavos teaches us He gets all of them. He gets all of it. But someone who only learns to learn, he only is given the ability to learn to learn. But you gotta have those good deeds. What is Torah without Derech Eretz? Torah in Derech Eretz. Perkyavos also teaches us both of them have come together. And a lot of people explain, a lot of commentators, that Derech Eretz means having a work experience, having a working life, having a job, being involved in the world. Because what's the point of learning business ethics if you're never if you're never judged with an ethical decision, we should never have crazy decisions, but what's the point of learning about honesty if you're never given an extra dollar and you never make a purchase, you never have a sale and you're given too much, you're given too little. How do you respond? It's all theoretical if you only learn but you have good you don't have good deeds. 
What's the point of learning about Shabbos if you're not actually going to practice it? You have to have good deeds. What's the point of learning about how to have a home if you don't have a home? You need to have the things in practice. Wisdom without good deeds is the lul of it. It's edible but has no smell. You're missing a crucial, fundamental, foundational aspect. The arava, the willow, has no taste and no smell. So it's a person that has no good deeds and no Torah learning. But they say, the Gemara says, that even someone who is not learned, even he has enough mitzvahs that is like a rimon, that is like a pomegranate, which some say is 613. So we have the Esra, good taste, good fragrance, that's the best. Torah learning and good deeds. You have the Hadas, good fragrance but inedible. So that's good deeds but no wisdom, no Torah. The Lulav, it's edible, no smell. That's the person with wisdom but without good deeds, it ain't good. The Arava, no taste, no smell, no good deeds, no Torah learning. Try to be an Esra. Try to be like an Esra. Try to be the Esra with the good taste, the good fragrance, Torah learning and Torah deeds and good deeds and mitzvahs and chesed. That is the ultimate chassid. That is the ultimate pious person really representing the best. But of course, all of them have to come together because those are all different aspects of the Jewish people involved in the unity of the whole people. On Sukkot, we gather these four species, we bind them and we wave them all together. The lulav is only kosher if all four species are taken together. Shulchan Aruch points that out. Later on, if one of the species is missing, the entire lulav is invalid. And that's a similar principle taught by the composition of the incense brought in the Holy Temple. There were 11 ingredients of which one, the chelbana spice, smelled terrible. By itself, it would wreak havoc and it would smell like garbage throughout the whole Beit HaMikdash, throughout the whole atmosphere. Yet the incense was only valid if all the ingredients were included together. This teaches that we must look at all the Jewish people as a unit, working together. Because there may be people we don't like, but we still have to deal with. I could point blank talk to you about that many times over the years. A lot of admin, a lot of teachers, a lot of students I did not like, but we have to deal with them. We have to be involved with them. I wish I could take all the the cute, wonderful, uh, little, uh, playful five-year-olds, but I can't do that. I have to work K to five kindergarten to fifth grade and you might have a fifth grader who has a lot of attitude you got to deal with it you know i had a student the other day it came up in conversation it's ironic that i teach handwriting and and help them with their handwriting and the spacing and the form and the size and with the cutting and the pasting and i said it's ironic that my handwriting is actually pretty bad and i work on handwriting so the student looks to me and says yo why are you teaching me handwriting if you don't have good handwriting how could you teach me i should teach you i should be the teacher and I said, uh, it doesn't really work like that, but okay. And he went on and on. He even told the speech therapist also, you know, you know, that, that OT, that occupational therapist, what does he teach us about writing? What does he help us with writing? His handwriting is terrible. And I'm like, you can't learn from my mistakes. I want you to teach you. I want to teach you to have perfect handwriting. I want you to have beautiful spelling, beautiful letters, beautiful size of the letters and space and line regard where you're writing on the line. Don't learn from how I write. Learn from how I try to teach you and how you should be better. That's the idea. You might have a student, you might have someone you don't want to see, you want to work with. And even today, he was giving me attitude again. I see him twice a week, 30 minutes, but whatever. You know, you still have to deal with them. You can't say that certain people are not part of our world or they don't belong to us. You can't say, I'm not going to pick up, you know, uh, Shahan. That's not his name. I'm not going to pick up Shahan. He doesn't belong to me. He's not on my caseload. He's not on my weekly schedule workload. I can't have him. No, nope, you got to take him. I specifically picked up all the kids that I had in the past, and that only took on 85% of my caseload. Had to pick on another five kids to get to the 24 kids, to have the 40 sessions of the week, eight sessions a day, 30 minutes a day. Got to have four hours of seeing kids a day, five days a week. He can't say he doesn't belong to me. I can't do that. I had to keep him up. Had to keep quote-unquote Shahan with me, and he's on my workload. He's on my caseload. I even saw him today. On the contrary, humanity is one indivisible unit. This recognition is basic to happiness because when we realize that we are all interconnected, we can be more patient and more tolerant of others. And Davka, I'm sure Hashem gives me these challenging kids on the caseload on purpose, Davka, to test the patience. Everything is a test. Mamash, I feel like, you know, just today the schach flew off the, uh, the sukkah and we didn't put it on today because there's a big storm coming tonight. Got to put it back on tomorrow on Arab Shabbos, which is always the craziest day of the week. Why? Because Hashem likes to throw tests after test. He only tests people that He loves. People say, why do I need these tests? Why does Hashem keep testing us? 
Why does he send things? And the Gemara says also, you go 40 days without a test, without an Nisayan, without a Surah, and you should be very worried. It doesn't say it in that phraseology, of course. Hashem only tests those He loves. You know, we're only going to, you know, have disagreements and have things with people we love. You know, people we have nothing to do with, we're not going to have anything to do with. We're not going to talk to them to begin with. If Hashem doesn't want to test, He doesn't want anything to do with you, yeah, He's going to let you go 40 days or more without talking to you. The test, the, the challenge better than the word test, is that Hashem wants to be connected to you. Hashem Dafka sends it to people He feels closest to. All the challenges, the, the struggles, the losses, the pain, the difficulties... He sends it mamash on purpose, and I talk to myself about this mostly, because he's very close to us. So yes, he sends me annoying kids on the case of. Yes, he may send me diff- difficult people over the years. Yes, he might have made the sukkah mamash flow off on purpose to be done on Arab Shabbos, mamash on purpose to see how we react. Oftentimes I fail the test, but each day we have to try. And we realize that we are all interconnected. We have to be more patient and tolerant of ourselves and others in the world around us. When we hold all the Arba Minim together, we recognize that there are different types of people that have to come together, that have to be together, that have to be part of the unit. Think about when the Lulav is held, the Esrog is held next to the Willow, depending on how you hold it. But a lot of times if I'm holding my Machsar in one hand and the Siddur and the, the Lulav and Esrog in the other hand, it's on top of each other, but technically the, the Siddur is down, you have the Lulav and you have the Hadassim and Aravasim right next to that is the Esrog. The one with the most is positioned next to the one with the least. The one that has no smell, no taste, nothing going for it is the one next to the one with the most smell and the most taste. The Esrog is next to the willow. Because the one with the most, quote unquote, the person that has the good deeds, that has the chesed, that has the Torah learning, should Dafka position himself to be near the one with the least in order to favorably influence him. So you have Torah learning, you have chesed in your being, you must associate with those that have nothing. Those souls, those lost souls that are so much floating in the periphery, that are floating around in our existence, that are lost, mamash lost souls. How do we connect to them? How do we reach them? How do we, how do we go out to them? Should it only be safe for the major care of professionals in H.com, in Chabad, in Orsameach, in NCSY, in Ignite, and, and Inspire, and BJX? No! Anyone can be a quote-unquote influencer to be Makarif. Everyone actually is supposed to be Makarif. I think Rabbi Noach Weinberg of Blessed Memories of Sal, I think he said that all of us have to be little care of machines, that we all have to do what we can to inspire. So you have Torah... You have good deeds, you must influence someone that has nothing. And that's one of the main reasons, one of the main drives for doing all my podcasts, for doing all my audio shirim, audio podcasts, audio recordings. And I don't do video on purpose because I want people to listen, not to look at my face, not to look at my gray hair, but to listen to the voice, to listen to the message. If there's any person on earth, if one person even hears and listens and is influenced and has a tiny hear-her of tshuva in their heart, then it's all worth it. One Parsha talk, five minutes. One Dav talk, three minutes, two minutes. One live show for an hour or so. One Perkeyavos talk for ten minutes or five minutes. One OT talk for five minutes. If one episode of one minute can influence and, and sway one person's heart who's not so close to Hashem right now, then it all becomes worth it. It all becomes worth it you know there was one time that i actually heard feedback from a student when i was working teletherapy online in the past i don't do it anymore but in the past there was one time one parent emailed me and said you know uh, mr t at the i go by uh, my alter my alter ego one of my alter egos is mr t of course reb t used to be now we go by tani but in general they said you know this show has been very helpful i even took notes i wrote down things and i said wow i felt such nachat ruach I felt such a wonderful feeling from that. That means the whole show, the five seasons, the 500 plus episodes, all the research, all the legwork, all the keeping it up, which is very difficult to keep it up, it was all worth it for that one student. So if there's one person you can influence, one person you can help, you could find that willow, you could find that one person that is like the willow, and you can be her believe to that person for one minute, it's worth all the effort. It's worth all the experience. It's worth all the hishtadlut, all the putting in that you can just to influence the person with the least. 
So you have a talent, you have an ability, you have a quality, you must use it. I always say this. I believe I have a little bit of a talent, only thanks to Hashem for talking. We made these shows. If you have ability to write, ability to speak, ability to make videos, ability to make movies or TVs, do it and use it to influence those people to be required of them. I talk often about you know, these Jewish movies, these Jewish books, these novels that are written so, so well that I believe even a non-Jewish reader would love them. I read a book on on uh, Yom Tov. We just finished a book from uh, Riva Pomerantz, Six Degrees. She writes really good books, really, really good. I could not put it down. You know, growing up, I, I read a lot of non-Jewish books, uh, many, many different authors, mystery, suspense, thriller. And, and many years ago, my wife and I switched over to only Jewish novels. And uh, we're happy to always lend it out, especially in the community to people, the books, and to get them back and whatnot. But in general, when we read it, you know, you make a real connection to it and you, you're able to, to really connect to it. Like that's the idea, using a Jewish novel to connect with people. So I got swayed to, to have Menucha Publishers or Sharp Press or Feldheim. Those things are really helpful for me. And watching a really good Jewish mystery movie like uh, The Edge by Rabbi Seltzer, my wife and I watched uh, a while ago based on the wonderful book. Those are really great things to have. Those people are using their talents to write in a comparable, if not better way, than non-Jewish society. To make a movie that's comparable, if not better, because of the Jewish elements, than a non-Jewish movie. I wish there were more. You think about the the, the show Shtisel. That is a fantastic, fantastic show. And it was done with an utmost caliber. We couldn't watch season three because it's majorly depressing. Majorly downer. But season one and two were fantastic. When we got to three, we're like, this is way too heavy for us. But we love the idea. We have to find the person with the least, even if we're not considered the most, but everyone really should be considered the most. If you have Torah deeds and learning, you really are considered a person with the most. We gotta try to influence those around us. The idea also finds expression in the midst of inviting guests to our sukkah. This year, try inviting some friends over, even someone you don't know very well in a safe and healthy, wonderful manner. The results can astound you. You could also look at the Lulav, as mentioned in Sefer Bahir, a Kabbalistic work of almost 2,000 years old, that it's the four species of the four parts of a human being. Again, we see a source later inside for this. The Esrog represents the heart, the seat of our emotions. The Hadas, the myrtle, has leaves shaped like an eye. The Lulav represents the spine, because it actually has a spine from where our actions emanate. The Arava, the willow, represents the lips, our speech. The four species must be taken together as a unit, so too... To achieve happiness, one must use all of his faculties in unison. You cannot say one thing and feel another. That's having cognitive dissonance. We gotta think, act, and feel the same way. We must unify our feelings, actions, speech, and outlook. With all these things working together, we are well on the path of self-esteem, tranquility, and joy. Another source that we could see also in Mirza Shem later also represents the name of Hashem, Arava, the Willow, Hadas, the Myrtle, the Lulav, the Daypam, and Esrog represent the Yud, the He, the Vav, the hey of the four-letter name of Hashem. Again, the key here is unity. As we see every day in Shema, prayer, Hashem is one. While the things may appear to us as good or evil, we must realize it all comes from Hashem. One must deal with various pleasant or unpleasant circumstances, ultimately for one's maximal growth, but at the root, everything comes from Hashem. Being aware of this keeps our focus and helps us to deal with the issues of life. When we relate to God's unity, we come closer to achieving joy in the world. So Sukkot is really a one-week opportunity to build these relationships and incorporate them into our lives. And we should all enjoy great success in this venture. May we be Zoha to do so. Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg points out on H.com, we can focus on the details, we can focus on the minutia, the deficiencies and the shortcomings, what is missing, the gaps in our life, and we will be miserable. Or we can employ imagination and creativity and find Happiness. Ezehu hashir hasameach bechalko. Chalko doesn't just mean the house you have. It doesn't just mean the car you have. It means chelak, your chelak, your portion in life. Hashem decided you will have one kid. Hashem decided you will have two kids. Hashem decided you will have three, four, five. Hashem decided you will be this job. Hashem decided this will be your car. Hashem decided this will be your house. This will be your community. Your chelak, your portion in life, be happy in the portion physically, emotionally, spiritual, and religiously. Be happy in the portion that you are made into an extrovert. Be happy that you're made into an introvert. Be happy you are made into a speaker or a writer or whatever. Whatever your chalik is, whatever your pekel is, be happy in your chalik. Happiness is not the result of getting what we are missing. 
but it is achieved by focusing on what is there. Ezuhu Ashira Sameach Bechalko, what you have. Seeing our lives as complete, even if it often takes imagination and creativity to do so. Because happiness doesn't come from things. Because you're going to want the next thing and the next thing. It doesn't even come from money. Because someone who. I believe Kohelas teaches us, which we're going to read soon on the end of Sukkot. Happiness doesn't come from things. You want 100 grand, you're going to want 200 grand, 300 grand. You never satiated with money, you never satiated from things. Happiness doesn't come from things. It comes from experiences and it comes from relationships, especially with Hashem. The author points out, don't get us wrong, things are nice, things are good, things are enjoyable, but we all know or I've heard of plenty of people with lots of things who are still pursuing happiness who haven't yet found it. Think about all these entertainers who have 20 room mansions and are miserable. They say the most depressed people actually are lottery winners. They get all this money and they have no happiness. They come, People come out of the woodwork, snoring money off them. I was friends with you in first grade. Can I have money? Can I have this? Can I have that? Makes them miserable. Makes them very upset, very unhappy. There are also people who lack many things but are very happy because happiness does not come from things. And what better to teach us that than the hut? You go to a hut, this little shack, whether it's made from wooden boards, whether it's made from like these snap poles that you bang in with this fake hammer like we have, whether it's made from those poles that you have to, uh, that you have to like crank in. Growing up, we had that. It doesn't matter. It's a simple hut. It's simple because things are not what matter. People, relationships... Torah and a relationship with Hashem, that's what really matters. People can lack many things but could be very happy. In the sukkah, don't feel the heat of the sun. Feel the warmth of your family. Don't focus on who is not at the table. Focus on who is at the table. Don't focus on what's spilled. Focus on how much is left to enjoy. The famous quote, an optimist is someone who looks at the cup half full A pessimist is someone who looks in the cup half empty. It's the same amount of liquid. Same amount of material in the cup. How do you look at it? Is it half full? Wow, I still have a cup half full of seltzer. Half full of my delicious strawberry banana smoothie, which we had today. One of my favorite things. Or do we look at it as half empty? Oh man, it's already half done. Yuck. Look at things as half full. Don't feel the heat. Don't focus on what's missing. Focus on what's there. Don't focus on what's spilled. Focus on how much is left to enjoy. Immersing ourselves in the sukkah is the secret to finally finding happiness. Go out of your home with fixed walls and a full roof and step into your temporary and incomplete hut that takes creativity and imagination to see as a dwelling. And you will experience true happiness and true joy. Eliana Klein points out on H.com, The sparks of joy we get from home and possessions are through living and creating with them. The spark of joy from the couch is from sitting with the children, reading stories, learning Torah, discussing things with them. The cluttered and scratched dining room table evokes joy by playing its pivotal pivotal role in the heart of the home where, where Shabbos happens, where meals, games, birthday cards, and many other things happen, and so much more. Joy isn't about the space we live in, but the space within us. So, owning less is not necessarily going to create the joy we yearn for. There's a whole movement by Marie Kondo, who I believe has a Netflix show, who says, if it doesn't give you happiness, it doesn't give you joy, throw it out. If you didn't get joy from this item in the past two years, it doesn't give you joy, don't keep it. That's not the solution, because the author, Eliana Klein, tried this experiment, and I read the article, and she explains... She threw out so many things, but she still felt empty. She still felt joyless. She still felt something missing. Because owning less doesn't necessarily create the joy. And if when we gather in the sukkah with the wobbly folding table and the artwork scribbles from kindergarten, we're in that space that rain is inevitably going to fall, the wind is inevitably going to come and lift up the schach every year. I forget to tie it down to the poles. I tie it down to the wood that's not on the poles. Mistake. Rookie Mistake. In that space, the rain will inevitably mar our careful decorations and we're going to celebrate the sukkahs anyway, the festival of joy. It's particularly in the sukkah when we leave our permanent homes, enter a holy space in case in God's eternal love that we experience true joy. The deepest joy is found specifically when we move out of the safety of our things, 
however many or however few, with no solid roof over our heads open to the elements. It is found in our vulnerability and acknowledging that we are powerless but beloved and part of the divine plan which we do not fully grasp but we trust that it is good. Called man to Avrahmana Avalutaiva. That's what Menachem Mishkamzu, excuse me, and Rabbi Kiva used to say. Gamzu Latova, Kol Manda Avad Rahmana, whatever Hashem does, Avad Latova does for good. Avad Latova does for good. Trust it is good, and it's very hard for me to swallow this mantra, especially when major elements are thrust against me this year and years past. Very difficult for me, but it's a lesson in Amuna. Everything is for the best, everything is for the good, especially when major things happen, but that's what we're supposed to remember and think about. It's found when we look beyond the concrete through to the stars, realizing that security ultimately comes from connecting with Hashem, basking in the sparks of joy that come through God's loving, sustaining embrace. Rabbi Joel Potowitz points out on H.com, We all want happiness, but often make the mistake of confusing happiness with success. Success, I love this quote, success is getting what you want. Happiness is wanting what you get. I love this quote so much, I'm going to say it again and again. Success is getting what you want. Happiness is wanting what you get. One more time. Success is getting what you want. Happiness is wanting what you get. As the sages teach, we talked about this before. Benzoma says, Pirkei Avos 4.1 Ezehu Ashir Hasameach Bechalko who is rich? Who is really rich? The one who is happy with his lot. Happiness is not something that happens to us. It's a decision we must make, and we could each be as happy as we decide to be. Since our mandate on Sukkot is to be completely joyous, v'samachta bechagecha v'hayisach sameach v'samachta how could he tell us to be only happy, only joyous? Hashem could tell us, because it's possible. Our mandate on Sukkot is to be completely joyous. We're obliged, we're obligated to make that decision, which requires us to take a view on one of life's great paradoxes. On the one hand, whoever you are, by virtue of being alive, your cup truly does runneth over. But on the other hand, you could always have a bigger cup, Choose to take pleasure in what you do have. And voila, you've stumbled upon the secret of happiness. Choose instead to focus on the pursuit of a bigger cup and you are forever left wanting. But be happy with the cup you have and you'll be satiated in happiness. Not only is this the secret to happiness, it's also the central message of the Sukkah's holiday. Named for the Sukkah, the sparsely roofed temporary structure in which we dwell for the seven days of the holiday. This year, and a repeat for what we have done for more than a hundred generations, Jews the world over abandon their homes and creature comforts to seek happiness in flimsy huts, furnished with little more than plastic chairs, foam mattresses, and foldy, wobbly tables. What better place could there be to remind ourselves that true happiness comes, not from all the stuff we have, but from what we still have when stripped of all our stuff. That's what can truly make us happy. Listen to these fascinating stories from the Sanal Safran on H.com. Mike sulked as he went through his closet for about the tenth time. How was he ever going to wear any of these junky clothes to visit someone so important? He'd been feeling really excited and nervous ever since he got the invitation a couple of days ago from Jeremy Anukin in the class to come to his house for what he'd call a sukkah party. Though he had heard of the holiday of Sukkot, Mike really didn't know too much about it. But whatever the reason for the invite, Mike was happy. After all, it wasn't every day a regular kid like him got invited to spend time together with someone like Jeremy, whose father was a very wealthy, famous executive who was even on the cover of Time magazine. Mike had wanted to make the right kind of impression by buying and wearing the latest new designer shoes and clothing, but his mom had said, no way. But mom, he pleaded, rich important people like Jeremy and his family aren't like we are. They won't even look at me if I'm dressed in plain old clothes. I'm sorry, Mike, but clothing like that just isn't in our budget, she said. Besides, I'm sure Jeremy doesn't want to be your friend because of your clothing. It's who you are inside that's important. 
Seeing that there was no more room for argument, Mike put on his best pants and shirt, shined his old shoes, combed his hair, and hoped for the best. Riding over on his bike, Mike was surprised to see that while the houses were somewhat bigger than average, they in no way resembled the huge mansions he had imagined Jeremy's neighborhood would include. Leaning his bike carefully up against the stone staircase, Mike's hand was a little sweaty as he knocked on the door. He was nervous to face the butler. He was sure was waiting on the other side of the door for his arrival, but was surprised when his knock was answered by none other than Jeremy's mom herself. Hi there, you must be Mike. We've heard so much about you from Jeremy. We're happy, so happy to meet you. Hey, Mike. Jeremy appeared behind his mother's shoulder, and the two of them smiled at each other as they welcomed Mike inside the house. Their house is so regular, thought Mike. They probably keep it that way so their sucker house can be really fancy, and they must spend all their money on that. Come on in, I can't wait for you to see our sukkahs out back. Jeremy led him through the house, which was actually a lot bigger on the inside than it seemed to be from the outside. They finally came to a glass door that led out to a huge yard. In one corner, Mike could see a wooden shack with leaves spread all over the top. Hey, what's that? The servants' quarters, he asked. Jeremy laughed. <laughs> no, we don't have any servants. My mom is a cleaning lady a few times a week, but she doesn't live here. So what is that, then? That's our sukkah. Mike opened the door to the wooden hut and his jaw dropped in surprise. He felt like he had stepped into another world, but not the way he thought it would be. Inside was a long table, beautifully set with all kinds of candy, cake, and nosh. There were all kinds of decorations and fruits and artwork hanging from the walls, and the branches that he now saw from the inside formed an open-air roof. Seated at the table were Jeremy's dad and two of his brothers, all reading from books with Hebrew letters. They, were, they all wore nice but simple clothing, and everyone looked very happy. Mike even felt a little overdressed. Jeremy's dad stood up. You must be Mike. Welcome to our sukkah. Would you like to make a blessing on the special etrog fruit and lulav branch? Then afterwards you could sit down and eat some of these delicious treats. Sukkos is a time for being together and enjoying each other's company. Mike couldn't get over how friendly and nice everyone was and how comfortable he felt. Even though they were very wealthy, Jeremy and his family were regular people, just like his family. Under the leaves and the blue sky, he realized that deep down people are all pretty much the same. Because it's not about the mansion. It's not about the building. It's not about how many rooms, how big the house, how big the car. In the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Money comes and goes, but happiness and memories, that's what really remains. That's one of my favorite quotes to live by. And it's so true. A person could have a huge house and be extremely, extremely depressed. A person could have a tiny house and be extremely, extremely happy. Possessions are not important. Yeah, you should have a little bit of space. Yeah, every kid should have a bed and you should have somewhere to eat and somewhere to sit and somewhere to cook, of course. But it's not about having 3,500 rooms or having 17,000 square feet. It's not going to make you happy. Possessions don't make you happy. The life of Torah, the life of a relationship with Hashem, finding the true happiness in what you have really can make you happy. And what time, better time to think of that than Sukkot. Listen to this other story from Nisan al-Safran from Aish.com. They called themselves the Fabulous Foursome. When they first met each other's little kids, Nancy, Deborah, Amy, and Sue became inseparable. They all lived on the same block, went to the same school, and even the same classes. Even though many times kids who are friends when they're little drift apart as they get older, the foursome seemed to stick it out through thick and thin, thick as thieves. But during the last couple of years, it had been getting harder to keep together. First of all, Deborah and Amy, who were the real brains, had transferred to a special school out of town that was just for extra smart kids, gifted kids, if you will. And Nancy had moved out of the neighborhood and started to go to a very exclusive private school that her parents felt was well worth the huge tuition. But Sue, a cheerful, friendly girl whose grades were not quite up to those of Deborah or Amy, and whose parents couldn't afford to send her to Amy's school, was left holding down the fort at their old school. The girls didn't want to just let the fabulous foursome fade away, so they decided that they would at least get together once a year. They chose the fall, at sickest time, as the best time to do it, since they all had off from school, and the holiday atmosphere was perfect for happy reunions. The first year, the girls got together in Amy's family's beautifully decorated sukkah. Although Sue felt a bit out of place as the other three animately went about their exciting new schools, just the fun of seeing old and dear friends made everything all right. Then and there, before they went home, the girls promised to get together again next year. Same time, same place. 
But now another year had passed and Sue's mother found her sitting alone in their modest sukkah on the back porch. Instead of her usual bright smile, the girl wore a frown that hardly reflected the natural joy of the holiday. Sue said her mom, aren't you and your old friends from school supposed to be meeting each other right about now? She shrugged as if she had forgotten about the whole thing, but she certainly remembered very well. She would have remembered even if Amy hadn't called her to remind and invite her the week before. At the time, Sue had given her a kind of a vague answer, murmuring under her breath that the others were probably getting bored, getting together with plain old her. She had considered going, but then decided she didn't have anything to add to the foursome, not Deborah or Nancy's brains, nor Amy, Amy's popularity and glamour. She figured that the others would surely be much happier to go on without her as a threesome and were only inviting her out of pity because they felt they had to. Sue's mother went back to her holiday baking as Sue went back to her gloom. A few minutes later, she heard a knock on the front door. Some neighbor coming to wish her parents a happy holiday, no doubt, Sue thought to herself. Then she heard what sounded like a lot of footsteps coming toward the sukkah. She looked up and was amazed to see her friends, Amy, Deborah, and Nancy, all wearing big smiles and holding a big, beautifully decorated cake with the words, Fabulous for, the number four, forever. Fabulous for, forever, written in pink icing. How could the three of us sit alone in front of a cake like this, quipped Amy. Sue blushed, but I thought you would never miss me. You guys are so special in your special schools and everything, and I'm so plain. By now, Deborah had started to cut the cake, not surprisingly made out of four layers. Sue, Nancy explained, waving her finger and mock scolding, you should know better than that. It's not where a person goes to school, what they have, or even what they know that makes a person special. Everyone is special. Reminds me of that song, Everybody's Special, Special, Everybody's Special, from Barney Days. Everyone is special, Lahabdil, just because they are who they are, and you're a special and important part of us. You always have something nice to say about everyone, and just seeing your smile is enough to brighten a person's whole day. You're like the glue that keeps the four of us together, and sitting without you, we felt like a table missing a leg. So what do you say? Let's cut this out and start cutting the cake, okay? Everyone laughed, and the foursome went on to spend beautiful sukkahs together for many years to come. Everyone should realize that they are unique and special and could bring a little bit of joy, a little bit of blessing, like we talked about on the Parsha show today, to the world. There's always something that someone could bring. There will never be another Tani, for example, in the world that was there or that will be or there is now because my soul is extremely unique and is extremely individualized. There might be other Tanis in the world, but they're not the same Tani as me. There might be other Moshes, but they're not the same Moshe as you. They'll never be exactly the same Moshe. That's exactly the same Nancy or Sue or Deborah or Chaim or Benyamin or Shlomo. This person, that person, you, there's only one you right now. There never was you. There never will be another you, and there is no other you in the entire world. You are the only you that exists. So what do you say? What will you do? How can you contribute? How can you take that joy, understanding that you are the you, especially like an asterisk with the mitzvahs, with the chesed, with the Torah learning, how could you affect the willow who is missing out on everything around you? Realize that you are special. Realize everyone is special and that we all can contribute something to the world. And this is especially apropos to remember on Sukkot. Here's a last story from Nassan al-Safran from H.com before we look at a few sources to learn about how less can be more, especially when we think about how we go from our comfortable homes to the small huts outside. Mom, I can't even fit all my clothes into these measly closets, Josh cried out glumly as his mother walked past his bedroom carrying a moving carton. Well, maybe that means you have too many clothes, she grinned. Ha ha ha, very funny, the boy thought. There had been plenty of room for his stuff in the big house where they used to live. Why did we have to move into this dumb, tiny condo anyway? He blurted out to no one in particular, as his mother had already moved on. Not that it mattered, he already knew the answer. It had to do with his dad getting a different kind of a job. But that didn't mean he had to be happy about it. And f after finally squeezing the last hanger onto the closet rod, Josh plopped down on his bed and looked around. True, he had all his furniture like in his old room, but now there wasn't space for almost anything else. Feeling claustrophobic and just plain mad, Josh stepped outside to get some air. He leaned over the railing of their condo's small porch, nothing at all like the big backyard they used to have, 
and sighed. <sighs> hey, are you new here? Josh heard a voice call out, but couldn't figure out from where. Up here, man, up here. Josh craned his neck upward to see a smiling, freckled-faced boy about his age looking down at him from the porch above. You just moved in, right? The kid went on. Yeah. Well, I'm Steve. We're neighbors from now on. Uh, hi. I'm Josh. Hi, Josh. You like playing street hockey? Josh nodded, his face brightening. He'd been part of an official street hockey league where he used to live. Well, me and some other kids play from here play every afternoon at parking lot C. I'm going now from out front. Want to come? Uh, sure. Just give me a minute. Josh ran back inside, started rummaging through the cartons that had his sports equipment. In his old house, he kept all this stuff neatly in an equipment locker in their big garage. Here, they didn't even have a garage. He fished out his pro-style helmet, knee, shoulder, and elbow pads, laced on his official hockey shoes, and slipped his mesh league jersey over his head. Then he reached under his bed, grabbed his fiberglass pro-curve stick. All this stuff had cost a lot, but it was worth it. You needed the best equipment if you really wanted to enjoy the game. He quickly told his mom where he was going, sprinted out the door. Steve was there, waiting. Let's go, Steve said, giving Josh a strange look. Josh noticed that Steve wasn't wearing or even carrying his uniform or pads or anything. The guys in the league here must have a private locker room where they keep their stuff in the gym the kid had said was at the end of the parking lot. Or so Josh thought. Because a minute later when they got there, he realized not only was there no locker room, there wasn't even a gym. Just a group of kids in their regular clothes laughing and running around with old beat-up hockey sticks in the parking lot. His face fell. This wasn't a hockey league, it was just a dumb little pickup game, small and shabby, like everything in this dumb place they'd moved to. Josh, you'll play on my team, Steve said, waving the kid into the action. While well, he was already here, might as well play just this once. Before he had a chance to think someone had shot the hockey ball, at least they had one of those, his way. Soon he was running and mixing up with the guys who he had to admit played pretty well. In fact, since they weren't as loaded down as he was, they were moving so fast he could hardly keep up. As the game went on, more and more of Josh's fancy official equipment came off until he was running around looking like the rest of the guys, laughing with them and having a blast. Could it be that having fancier stuff or a bigger house wasn't what made a person happy after all? Great game, Josh. Steve slapped him on the back. Tomorrow, same time, same place. You bet, Josh nodded thinking to himself that though he was surely in a different, more simple place than he'd been used to, there was no reason from now on he couldn't have just as good a time. Sukkot reminds us it's not about the things. It's not about the possessions. It's not about how big the house is or how small. It's not about how luxurious the car is or not. It's about the connections between people, the relationships between ourselves, our spouses, our kids, family and friends between us and Hashem, making the connection, leaving our house, Dafka to go to the sukkah, Dafka holding the willow, holding the myrtle, holding the etrog, holding the lulav with the spine, the heart, the lips, the limbs, holding the Jew that has no chesed, that has no Torah learning, holding the Jew symbolizes the esrog that has the Torah learning, that has the chesed, holding the one that has fragrance but no deeds, the one that has deeds but no fragrance, all together, because it's not about the things, it's about the people and how we have to influence and impact them as much as we can every day. Just wanted to look at a few sources that we could see it inside also. We know in Vayikram 2340 to 44, we look at the actual text that tells us to get out there in the sukkah. The 15th day of the seventh month, you gathered in the yield of your land, you observed the festival of Hashem seven days, you complete rest and rest on the eighth day. The first day, you take the product of Hadar, others goodly. And the product is seen as citron, the trees, the branches of the palm trees, the leafy, the, uh, the trees, the willows of the brook. You shall rejoice before Hashem. Observe it as a festival for Hashem for seven days. You shall observe in the seventh month as a law for all time, all ages. Live in booths seven days. All citizens in Israel shall live in booths. In order that future generations may know that I made the Israelite people live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. Hashem did, and Moshe declared it for all times. Hashem took care of us in booths. Hashem took us out, and some people say that the Jewish people may booth themselves. So we live in the sukkah, not just to remember the protection, to get rid of the stuff, remember what's really important, but also to remember who took care of us, who always takes care of us, 
and who sheltered us with protection of the huts, the metaphorical or the really the literal clouds that were our protection, but also the huts we lived in. Hakatava Hakabala points out in Vayikram, so the generation knows in Sukkot, the clouds of glory began to appear above the people of Israel in Sukkot, the place called Sukkot, as it's pointed out in Shemos, the children of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkot, from Ramses to Sukkot. In the Mechot, Rabbi Akiva says, Sukkot refers to the clouds of glory. That's why scripture wrote Basukos with the Vav. Full spelling teaches us the place where the clouds of glory first appear. The name of the place is always spelled with the full form of Sukkot. Devarim also points out that on Sukkot, the whole, the whole people of the Jewish people would come together with this very beautiful mitzvah called Hakel. Every seven years, the Jewish king on Sukkot would read from the Torah with everyone in attendance, especially the little babies. Deuteronomy 31 points out, Moshe instructed them every seventh year, the year set for remission at the Feast of Booth, Sukkot, when all Israel comes to be before Hashem in the place he'll choose, obviously the temple, shall read this teaching aloud in the presence of Israel, gather all the people, men, women, children, the strangers, hear and learn to revere Hashem, to faithfully observe the words of the Torah. The children too, who don't even have experience, shall come and hear it, and I believe Rashi points out, maybe in the Talmud, why did the little, little, little babies come? So that the parents, the families can get reward for bringing them. And there was a, a sage whose mother would bring him in the cradle to the base medrash. Why? So that he would just hear the hum, the tunes, the beautiful sing-song of the Talmud, of the learning of the Torah. The Mishnah points out in Gemara Sukkot, how would the king read at this Hakel assembly? So at the conclusion of the first year of the festival of Sukkot on the 8th, after the sabbatical year, they make a wooden platform for the king. He sits on it, and he reads from the Torah. The, the Torah scroll is taken out, given to that a synagogue, and then it was given to the high priest, and then it gives it to the deputy high priest, and then it gives it to the real high priest, who gives it to the king. He stands, he reads from it while singing, and while sitting, excuse me, and read, read of it. And uh, King Agrippa was an example of someone who read from it while standing. The sages you know, they praise him for it because even though it says don't appoint a foreigner, he thought he was a descendant of the house of Herod and he was a foreigner, but they said, no, you're our brother. But anyway, it says these are the words, Shema Yisrael, and then he reads beginning with Shema Yisrael and the Haya Kiviyacha, I believe, when it comes to pass, you shall tithe, and when you make an end to the tithing, different passages he would read, and the same blessings that the high priest, the calling elder, recites in Yom Kippur, he recites as well, and gives a blessing concerning the festivals and the place of the blessing, because Sukkot is a time of blessing, it's a time of joy, it's a time for everyone to come together. Hakel, when people gather, families come gather together outside, remembering what the important things in life, remembering what's really things that you should really focus on, the things that are important, not possessions, but people, relationships, and connecting to Hashem and doing the mitzvahs. Shulchan Aruch itself points out in Orachayim 625, we dwell for seven days because Hashem protected the children of Israel, the clouds of glory, protected them from the heat, the sun, and it's a mitzvah to get ready for Sukkah right after Yom Kippur. In fact, I bought my lul of an Asrim Tadassim and Aravos right after Yom Kippur night in order to be involved in the mitzvahs of Sukkot right away. I went to an outdoor vendor in our neighborhood and I got my whole set right after Yom Kippur because you should, if a mitzvah balayado, al-tachamotz, al-tachamitz, don't let it become leaven. We, we learn from Pesach that if a mitzvah comes to you, don't let it get away from you. Don't let it become leaven. Deuteronomy 16 points out three times a year you got to come before Hashem by Shavuos, by Sukkot, by Pesach. Come to Hashem, don't come empty-handed. Come make Aliyah, come visit Aliyah to Israel if you don't live there, which of course is the best, but come with the gifts so that Hashem can bestow blessing that Hashem can give on all of us. We should be Zohar. The Gemara points out in Sukkah 27, Abraisa taught that Rabbi Elijah says a person doesn't fulfill the obligation on the first day of the festival, the lulav of another. He needs to have his own lulav and he also needs to have his own sukkah. Sages derive that it is very important to take for yourselves the sukkah, to take for yourself and to build for yourself a sukkah, to dwell, to have, to live in your own sukkah, not just to visit someone else, family or friends, but to literally have your own sukkah, to eat in your own sukkah, to be involved in your own sukkah, and of course, your own lulav as well. The Rambam points out in Mishnah Torah on Shofar Sukkah Lulav, the length of the species, it, the palm branch shouldn't be less than four tzvachim, four hand breaths. And it's not from the spine, from the top of the leaves. The myrtle and the willow should be not less than three tzvachim. And they should be this length so they could really fully be involved in them and appreciate them and see them. And how many to take? The lulav, one lulav, one esrog, two twigs of the willow, and three twigs of the myrtle, which is, of course, what we do, but it's always good to know the source from Mishnah Torah talks about. 
and you want to make it that you take it as a bunch, you take it together, and that it's all one mitzvah. Vayikarabah points out on 30, Romani, open all my bones, shall say, Lord, who is like you, Hashem mi kamocha, who stated for the sake of the lulu, the spine of the palm branch is similar to the spine of the man we talked about before, the myrtle is the eye, the willow is the mouth, the estrog is the heart. David said, in all of the limbs, there are no greater ones than these. They're compared to the entire body. All my bones shall praise Hashem. We should praise Hashem. We should talk to Hashem. We should dive into Hashem with our whole being. Not just with our mouths, but with our very essence, our very soul, our very being. All aspects of all limbs of our body. Vayikarabah 30 points out some beautiful explanations of why we take the different aspects of the lula, of the esrog, the hadassim, and arava. So we mentioned it earlier before, but here is the source. The fruit of the beautiful tree refers to our father Avraham, who graced Hider with a good old age. Avraham was old and come in his days. And you shall grace the old, the branches, the kapot, temarim of the date palm. This is Yitzchak, who was bound, kafut, which is spelled like kapot, and was tied up on the altar. The branches of the braided tree, a myrtle. This is Yaakov, like the myrtle bustles with leaves, so Yaakov was bustling with children. Brook willows, this is Yosef. The willow gets withered from before these three other species, so Yosef died before his brothers. We should never know from such things. Also, the fruit of a beautiful tree, this is Sarah, who, gra- who was graced with Hider with old age. And Avram and Sarah were old, it said in Baratius. Branches of a date palm, this is Rivka. Like the date palm has food and thorns, so to Rivka brought up a righteous one and, and one not righteous. Branch of a braided tree, this is Leah. Like this one has leaves, so too she had children, many children. We shall be Zalchan. Brooke Willows, this is Rachel, just like it didn't make it like the other ones, so to Rachel didn't make it, we should never know from such things. Two other fasting explanations which are more common, more famous. The fruit of a beautiful tree, Eitz Hadar, this is the great Sanhedrin of Israel, who Hashem braced with a good old age. As it says, get up in front of the venerable one. The branches of a date palm, this is the Torah scholars who force Kafin themselves to learn from one another. The myrtle, a branch of a braided tree. This is the three rows of students who would sit in front of them, which was Kerem Yavna, the way they would talk about Yavna when the Torah learning moved to Yavna, when Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai saved Torah Jewry, moved them to Yavna, they would sit in rows, literally like rows of students, like a like Kerem, like a, the way it is in a vineyard. Brook Willows, this is referred to the two judges, scribes who stand in front of them, write down the words of those who would render innocent and those who would render guilty. Another fascinating explanation the fruit of a beautiful tree, this is referring to Israel, like the Esra, which has taste and smell. Israel has people that has Torah and good deeds, the very, very famous explanation. Branches of the day palm, this is also Israel. This date, which has taste and no smell, so to Israel has people that have Torah but don't have good deeds. The bra- branch of a braided tree, the myrtle, referring to Israel, the myrtle, which has smell and no taste, so to Israel has among those who have good deeds but do not have Torah. The willows, this is referring to Israel, the willow that has no smell and no taste. So too, unfortunately, Israel has people that has no Torah, no good deeds. What does Hashem do? To destroy them is impossible. Hashem takes them together, bind them together, one grouping, and these will atone for those. And you will have done that, and they will be elevated at that time. That's what it means about upper chambers in the heaven. He elevated them by making them one grouping. Those who have the most help those that have the least, like we talked about earlier. Medrash Tanchuma talks about an Amor, take for yourselves the bones, say, who is like you. David said, you take all things, the spine, the eyes, the lips, the esrog, and you dive into Hashem with your whole body. There's no greater organs than these to make yourself involved with davening to Hashem, being involved in actions for Hashem. That is the best thing, to put your whole being, your whole essence, into service of Hashem. The more Nebuchadnezzar, the Rambam points out in part 3, that Passover and Sukkot, a certain moral lessons. Passover teaches, remember, the miracles that Hashem brought in Egypt. And the Sukkot reminds us of the miracles that He brought in the wilderness, that He took care of us, He sheltered us from the sun, He sheltered us from the heat, He gave us protection, and there were huts for us to live in. Man ought to remember his evil days and his days of prosperity, thereby be induced to thank Hashem repeatedly to lead a modest and humble life. People should realize what Hashem has done for us then and continues to do for us always now. The Sifra points out an Amor. Take for yourselves, each one for yourselves, not borrowed. Make sure to fulfill on your first day with your own lulam. You can gift it to someone and let them borrow it, but really you should have your own. Even a hundred people can be gifted to, like Rabbi Gamliel gave it to someone else, who gave it to Rabbi Shul, gave it to Rabbi Lezer, gave it to Rabbi Zari, Rabbi Lezer, Rabbi Zari, to someone else. Really, it's best to have your own lulam, your own sukkah, to be fully involved, fully present in the mitzvah, in the chag itself. 
Sefer HaChinuch points out there's a matter that has four things. These things are precious to the limbs and the man. We know about the heart, the intellect, to hint that he should serve his creator with his intellect. The lulav is like the backbone, the essence of a person. He should straighten himself to completely be in service to Hashem. The myrtle, like the eyes, that he shouldn't stray after the eyes, but do for Hashem. And the lips to be involved in talking and doing good things for Hashem. Gemara Shabbos 133 talks about how do we know Zechelevi Anveyor to glorify Hashem? Those taught in the Brisa. This is my God, I will glorify him. This is talking about knowing beauty and beautify yourselves in mitzvahs. Even if one could fulfill it by doing it simply, by doing it plainly, you know, you could put up a sukkah, you could put up a and have no decorations, but it's good to put up a few decorations. Some put up a thousand, I like to put up a few, because sometimes less is more. I don't want to overwhelm, overstimulate the kids or ourselves. And that's the way to make sure to beautify mitzvahs. You could also buy a lulav and an esrog set for $20, for $40, for $60, $80, $100. You don't have to spend $1,000, but maybe get the $60 set instead of the $40 set, which is what I try to do. The Gemara points out in Sukkah 51 about the, 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 the Mayim, the, the gathering of the, the Mayim. Of course, it's, it's, uh, it's escaping me now how to say it in Hebrew, but... Uh, the Simchat Pesachoyev, excuse me. The, the Gemara talks about the Mishnah. If you didn't see the celebration, the placing of the drawing in the water, you never saw celebration in your life. The end of the festival, they went down to the courtyard. They would get repair. They would have a golden candelabra there. There were basins made of gold, and there were ladders, and they would go from the ladders, and they would get pictures with many with much much liquid in it, they would wear the trousers and the belt and they would go and they would light the candle and there would be much light and everybody would see the place of the drawing of the water, they would see the Simcha Beta Shoeva, they would dance before the people, there were flaming torches they would say before them passages a song of praise, they would play on lyres and harps and cymbals and trumpets nowadays I'm sure they would use guitars and drums other musical instruments, they would stand on the 15 stairs and they would which correspond to the 15 songs of the Shira Malases, which is a beautiful connection. In the base of English, there were 15 stairs. And there were also 15 Shira Malases. And they would use their instruments and they would start song. The ceremony would be that they went to, from the gate and they would go to the courtyard with the trumpets and they would sound a tekiah, a teru, a tekiah. They would gather the water and they would go sound a tekiah and then a true tekiah to indicate it's time to, to get the water from the famous Siluam pole. Then they would reach the woman's courtyard with the base of water. They would sound another tekiah and true tekiah. They would reach the ground of the woman's courtyard. They did another tekiah, tekiah, tekiah. Then they would continue sounding the trumpets until they got to the gate through your exit to the east. They would go and they would reach the gate and they turn from Mason E to the east to the west and they were saying how that this is where they were in the point and they would go and they would repeat and they would talk about that we are to Hashem and Hashem are to us. A beautiful, beautiful ceremony of gathering the water that was done on Sukkot. And that's why there's huge parties, huge Simchat Pesachuevas, which should be reminiscent of the fact that it was a huge time of joy, especially related to water, especially we say Tefillat HaGeshem on Sukkot as well, to remember that it's really a joyous time, really a wonderful time. And the Gemara also points out in Sukkot 28, all seven days of Sukkot, a person has to have a Sukkot as permanent residence. The house is temporary because what is really important? Realize the true protection, the true possessions, true things come from Hashem. Really, it all comes from Hashem. Mishnah Torah points out, how do you do the dwelling of the Sukkot? You eat, you drink, you live in the Sukkot all the days during the day and the night in the way that you live in your home. That is really your home. That is really what's permanent. That's where you should be. You bring beautiful vessels and bedding. Bring all your foods there in order to really rejoice in Hashem. And the last idea is about Shemini Atzeres. What is the idea of Shemini Atzeres? So why is there this extra holiday which is, only, which is really called its own holiday? So Rashi points out in Vayikra the idea of holding back. What does it mean? I keep you back with me one day more. It's like the case of a king who invited his children to a banquet for a certain number of days. When the time arrived for them to take their departure, he said, Children, I beg of you, stay one more day with me. It is so hard for me to part with you. Halavai. It should always be for us that we feel this way on every Yom Tov and every Shabbos. My wife and I actually try to do Bli Nedrim, and it might make people nervous if they're trying to reach us. But after Shabbos, we try to extend Shabbos a little bit. After Yom Tov, we try to extend Yom Tov a little bit because it's really sad. It's really hard for Yom Tov or Shabbos to go especially for me, Shabbos is such a much more beautiful essence than the whole rest of the week. The phone can wait. The texts can wait. The emails can wait. The calls can wait. But Shabbos really can't wait. Holding on to every minute. Holding on to the Chag. Shemini Atzeres. Holding on to every aspect. Really can't wait. Hashem wants us to stay a little more. We should want to stay a little more. We should realize what Sukkot really teaches us about the different kinds of Jews, the different kinds of organs, the different kinds of Imahot and Avot. 
how we're supposed to be reminiscent of real joy. We're supposed to realize the happiness really comes from learning about what we have and not looking for what we want. What is really important? What really is happiness? What is really things that make us happy? How do we figure out how to be happy? How do we figure out what really makes us happy? We have to realize that it all comes from Hashem. We have to realize what is important and what is not. Don't focus on what's missing. Focus on what's things. Happiness doesn't come from things. It comes from experiences and it comes from relationships. We dafka leave a house to go to the sukkah. We dafka should realize a person could have a thousand rooms and be miserable. A person could have two rooms, three rooms and be extremely happy. We take the lulav, we take the esr, we take the das menaravas. Simple, simple creatures, simple, simple plants and creations that symbolize such powerful things, such wonderful things that have such significance, such wonderfulness representing the Jews that have the deeds or don't have the deeds that have the Torah learning or don't have the learning representing different aspects of our being of our essence taking them together in service of Hashem may we be zilcha to internalize the lessons really have true happiness true joy on this zman simchatene or maybe we be zilcha to have true simchat based hashaweva and the real base megdash may be speedily in a day may Mashiach come today and may we celebrate in the ultimate way with all of our friends speedily in Yerushalayim Habanuya may it be today this has been Tani Talks Live join us next time as we talk a topic per session with some practical lessons have a chag kasher v'sameach